0: So I was reflecting that uh, Sylvia in the last four weeks has just worked with the four noble truths these core teachings uh, from the Buddhist tradition and how many people were there at all or most of the last four weeks and so you were able to be there with these this, this fundamental teaching, core teaching from the Buddhist tradition and, um, and really something that actually becomes quite universal that the, this teaching uh, the, that there is suffering in human life, that there are roots to the suffering, that uh, those roots can be identified in a kind of compulsive grasping or aversion, a kind of reactivity so that we don't want to be with something that's present but somehow have to push it away or grab hold of to get more and this um, this teaching that we can in a way um, see how that works see how when we have um, unpleasant sensations in the body or the mind we tend to be reactive we tend to Tense with our bodies when we have unpleasant sensations in the body. We get in, in a sense tense with our minds when we have unpleasant uh, emotions or, or, or thoughts. You know, someone, um, something goes wrong, and I and I can uh, react. I can blame myself. I can blame others. I can, in a way, proliferate uh, a great deal. And what we learn is that that's all workable. You know, or the same way that in so much of the world, when there's something painful or unpleasant that happens, whether it's on a small scale, like someone saying something uh, really mean to me, and my condition tendency would be what? Would, depending on my conditioning, it would be typically either to fight, flee, or freeze. That would be the conditioned reaction. Fighting would mean probably saying something really mean right back within a microsecond. Uh, Fleeing might be to just uh, be really hurt and just kind of withdraw. And freezing would be to um, just be really confused and kind of stuck and not know what to do with that situation. And so our conditioned tendency would be to do that. On a social level, it would mean... When something really difficult happens, let's say there's uh, pain, or someone attacks me, or my community, the conditioned tendency would just be to fight right back. Or again, it could be each of these three: fight, fight flee, or, or freeze. <coughs> and, but but as we know in the world, the tendency would be to fight back, and so we have cycles of violence. And so what the the uh, practice here, and really I think this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. It's really pretty universal. Um, I talked with my mother last night, who who often comes here. As as many of you know, she's not here today. Um, But I said, well, she said, what are you going to talk about? I said, I want to follow Sylvia's presentation of the Four Truths. And she said, well, you know, I really like the message of the Four Truths, but I don't like when they say the Four Truths or this Buddhist stuff. You know? (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's not breaking too much confidentiality. <laughs> but um, anyway, she says, "You know, I really like it when it's just direct, without the uh, Buddhist overlay."
1: <laughs>
0: anyway, uh, um, some of you may, but I think it actually, it doesn't need the Buddhist commentary because what this is really is really pointing, I think, to pretty universal truths, and I like this think of how the Four Noble (coughs) Truths, which are the the fact of suffering, the roots of suffering and this compulsive grabbing hold of things or pushing away, which is connected with greed, it's connected with hatred, with reactivity, and then the possibility of um, not doing that, really of being with the situation in a way that uh, doesn't have suffering, suffering in the sense of that reactivity not suffering in the sense of there being pain. There's always, and often, pain. But it's sometimes said that suffering is the reactivity, that compulsive pushing away of things or grabbing hold. And it's often said pain is a given, suffering is optional. And the third truth is really saying that. The third truth is saying this suffering is optional. Some kind of peace, even with things that are difficult, is possible. All the things that we mentioned at the end of the sitting. Some of them are quite difficult. And it's not, it doesn't being this third truth of peace. It's not about being passive. It can be a very direct response. It can be to change the conditions that lead to, that lead to pain, that lead to suffering. But there's some way that we're not reactive with it. So, In other words, it's possible to transform a situation without being reactive. And I, I would say that that's at the heart of some of the great uh, figures who have committed themselves to change, like I think of Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, who say, "I can be with the situation, and I can be with a really uh, painful situation, and I can respond, but out of, as it were, uh, that third truth of, of peace, of freedom, rather than of keeping the cycles of reactivity, of violence, going." And so I think that this teaching is quite universal. It's a powerful teaching. It can be expressed without Buddhist language. And it can connect with many other approaches and traditions. And so then the fourth truth, which uh, Sylvia um, talked about yet last time, I'm pretty sure, right, The, the Eightfold Path, is really the practical way that transformation occurs. And it's this beautiful teaching which sometimes is uh, grouped in terms of three main areas of training, uh, sometimes grouped in terms of training in wisdom, training in ethics, and training in meditation. That's what the traditional Buddhist understanding was of how the transformative process occurs. And the wisdom it has the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path, uh, what's sometimes called right understanding or and right intention. And And I think there's a better translation than right. The word sama is translated as right. Right to me has Victorian connotations. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Better be right. There's wrong. You be right. And so forth. It can be a little tight. Right can be tight. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's, um, I think it's, but actually when you look at it, the the etymological roots of sama is the word in in Pali. It's, you know, the language being an Indo-European language is actually quite connected with words like uh, uh, summary or summa. Some of you know Thomas Aquinas, the summa theologica. It, it really means summation or maturity. So I would say that a better translation might be mature understanding or mature intention. So if, if right has rankled you, <laughs> go with mature. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's, um, and so the, the, this quality I'll call it mature understanding, mm-hmm. and, and mature intention, or, or, aid, which means to really uh, intend to do that, which leads uh, towards freedom. And then the, the the middle part of the eightfold path, connected with <coughs> ethics or action, has to do with uh, uh, right livelihood. Uh, right action, or mature action, and then uh, mature speech. <laughs> one of one of the three there. And then lastly, the, the part of meditation has to do with, uh, I'll call it mature mindfulness, mature effort, and mature concentration. So this is the Eightfold Path. So I was thinking, how to do, how do follow the discussion of the Four Truths, and particularly the Eightfold Path? And I was thinking that although this... Um, sense of the Eightfold Path can really offer uh, a very practical sense of how to engage in transformative practice. And it's a wonderful guide. It, I think the question may still arise, well, how do I do this in the kind of life that I have? How do I do this in the life uh, that I'm given, as it were? Uh, and so today I wanted to sort of follow the teaching of these four truths, and particularly the Eightfold Path, by talking about the ways to deepen daily life practice. How do we really work with these practices, as it were, where the rubber <laughs> hits the road, or where, where we come through all the structures of our daily life? And I'm thinking to do that this time and also next time. And my my sense of things was that I wanted to talk first about why that's challenging this uh, daily life practice in, in in this particular culture and all the different subcultures we're part of. And then also, um, and then from that, uh, talk about several ways that have been particularly important to me to really deepen practice. And what I want really to evoke from each of us what are the particularly the one or two main ways that we might want to focus on in the next week or two to so really give some energy. It's really a response partly to your question of how do I, how do I have this relaxed urgency? How do I energize my practice? It's really, it's really something that we, we all are, are interested in. And I think what I'll do is I'll probably, I had I like six ways that were particularly important for me about about how to um, deepen daily life practice. And I'm thinking to do three this time and three next time, so they'll be, as it were, <laughs> baked for next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see it. So I'm thinking to do that, and so to give give uh, give time for us talking together. So when I first came to California. Which was at the end of the 1980s. I had been living in uh, rural Ohio and Kentucky for seven years, and felt like, felt at times uh, isolated. Isolated in practice, um, I was doing taking some teaching roles, but there was, but um, there was not always so much um, of a community. And I thought when I came to California. Um, Everything would just change because there'd be so many like-minded people that I would. Um, um, everything, in terms of daily practice, would just be easy and flow, and wonderful, and everything that had been sometimes challenging living in other parts of the country would, would change. I, alth- I I remember thinking when I came here, you know, that this is such a beautiful area, and I remember going over the San Rafael Richmond Bridge and, and just being amazed at the beauty of the day and saying, how could anyone even suffer here? <laughs> it's so beautiful. You know? Well, it didn't take long for me to know that both personally and from others that it was indeed possible to suffer even with the beauty. In fact, at a certain point, we probably we don't, I know I don't tune into the beauty in the same way that I did when it was fresh, you know, which is a loss in a way. And that it is quite beautiful, but that even with the uh, spirit rock uh, proximity of many centers one could go to, if you wanted to go to spiritually minded workshops and retreats, you could fill up your entire all your evenings, your days, your weekends with you know choices of eighty five different workshops you know, that will work on everything from your Toes, to your belly, to your voice, to your you know your chakra system, to your um, mindfulness, to your heart, to your past lives, to your future lives, and you know some choices. Uh, and most, some of them expensive, some of them cheap, and most of them promising a lot. So, and yet, um, even for most of us. Uh, Daily life can feel challenging, and the Buddha actually spoke about daily life as being, uh, in his time, being he he said the the words that we have translated. He said it was dusty and crowded, <laughs> and that um, that actually spiritual transformation in daily life is hard because there's too much to do of a required sort. He thought dusty and crowded. And we could add, you know, in our culture there's all the, the different ways that make uh, that make our daily life challenging. You know, many of us are very, very busy. You know, uh, we have, I know, although uh, many of you you have a place in your work week so you can come on Wednesday mornings and the rest of the week may be quite busy. Very full. Some of you that's not the case, but for many of us it's it's very busy. The larger culture um, does not really support uh, being mindful and attentive. In fact, we could say that it actually supports the opposite. Being distracted. You know, have, Being distracted and having too much to do. There's a way in which our culture is getting more and more frenetic and I think many of us know this. You know, I was trying to reflect on a time when there was no email and there were no answering machines you know, I, I believe that there was a time in the past. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but does anyone remember it? Yes. <laughs> there was a time. There was a time. And sometimes I think history will be rewritten, so that it said that in the beginning was email. Like um, but it's pervasive, and I don't know about you, but uh, it's hard to keep up with. You know, and, it's, and of course, there are benefits from it, but it's, it's, it's very busy. There are a lot of distractions. In some ways, the world is becoming, um, for many of us, uh, increasingly mental. So much time on the computer. Easy to get disembodied, to lose contact with our heart, and so forth. Uh, Challenging conditions. Some of us, even though we come here, may not feel like we have so much support the rest of the week. We may feel like I'm somewhat on my own at work or even in my family or with my friends, you know, or some of us may live alone, and they feel like I don't have the kind of support that I would wish. You know, that uh, we can find when we're here, or when we, for example, do retreats. We know that in a way when those of us who've done retreats know that it's almost like uh, everyone in the retreat is reminding us to be aware, to be present. And we don't always have that in our daily lives. Some of us do things like bracelets or strings around us or write things in our hands or have artwork or whatever to remind us. But still, it's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging to bring these principles, I mean, just in terms of support, let alone the kind of intrinsic difficulty of being with, with what's difficult or of being with things that come up in our lives. And yet there's something that I believe is very strong in our culture, which is that many of us have a very deep aspiration to touch our own truths and the more universal truths of consciousness and of being human more deeply. In most of the Asian cultures, to be a layperson I would say was is to be in the spiritual minor leagues. That the real action in a way was being a monk or a nun. And I think there's something different for many of us. Is that we're kind of in between. Many of us want a, have a certain spiritual urgency and want that kind of transformation. And yet we've chosen to do so in the context of daily life with work and family and email and driving cars, and so forth. And it's challenging. You know, in some ways, it actually has challenges that permit uh, us to touch areas of our conditioning that might not be touched in a monastery. So there are positive aspects of it as well. You know, that I've, I know that I've met people who might have spent 10 or 15 years in a monastery. I remember talking with one person. He came out of a monastery very deep training in awareness and concentration and very Mm, very powerful, uh, transformative states. And he came out, and he went into an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And he said, "I touched areas there that I had never touched, so to speak, in the in the in the monastery. That were that were not uh, not just areas of life, but related to conditioning, related to um, ways of being more limited, or stuck, or whatever." So there's tremendous potential here to deal with issues of injustice, to connect with others. There's potential for very deep sense of uh, um, uh, connection, love, interdependence, compassion. So there's tremendous potential in this daily life that we've chosen, and yet it's hard to know how to do it. And so I want to I want to talk about a few, three ways this morning, three further ways that have been really important for me in doing that. And I want to first recognize those of you who've been at retreats know that we have, we often give (coughs) talks on daily life practice. And we mention certain qualities or certain um, um, activities that that are really uniformly helpful. And we mention, well, it's really crucial to have a daily sitting practice. And for some of us, deepening our practice might be just to focus on that to say okay well now i'm going to do it i'm going to really have that daily practice cuz it's crucial that that reminder you know another very basic way to deepen practice is to be part of a community or several communities and being here is one way of doing that to connect with like-minded people very very crucial you know and some of for some of us that might be how we that might be the main edge. We might say, "Okay, I really want to make a, a vow to connect at least once a week and be part of a community." For for those drawn in that way, we also might want to do more reading, reflection, listen to uh, talks. You know, there's, on the internet now, there's tremendous resources available. You know, very skilled um, teachers and scholars uh, have talks available, which you can just download and have you know, have all the talks you want. Really. Um, and others of us, we may, we may also feel like something like following the ethical precepts is just a very key way to deepen in practice. And so there are these ways that are more basic. And in fact, um, if you had, I'd like to ask you, if you had to reflect on what really helps you the most to deepen your practice, to really or keep it deepening. Take a minute right now and just reflect. You have to think of one or two main ways that your practice is supported, that you're able to take these teachings that we looked at through Sylvia in the last four weeks. What makes that real in your life? What helps you? Just take a minute or so. would like to say? Maybe just say it, if you could say it in a sentence, what would you say, please?
1: I would say to stop.
0: To stop. Just when to stop the busyness. You know, like yeah. when I The momentum. Again, if you had to say it just in one <coughs> sentence, what would you say, please?
1: Persistent uh, intention
0: mm-hmm. to
1: come, come to, to come back to it again and again, but to sort of—it's um, it, almost like a, it's like going into a pool that has. You know, it's like, it's all around, to be here, to read, to, you know, it's just doing all those things, but to keep at making those choices Mm -hmm. instead of other choices. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Persistent intention, continual choices that take you in the the direction of of opening. Mm -hmm. Please.
1: I I feel it in my chest. Mm. If I'm um, feeling hurt or I feel like... um, I'm hardening on something, as soon as I notice, then I try and see how to soften again Mm -hmm. and understand that the person that I feel hurt by or whatever is maybe protecting themselves or Mm -hmm. armoring or for some reason their action is ultimately a need to be loved, even Mm -hmm. though I can't directly see it that way, and Mm -hmm. then I can soften towards Mm -hmm. them again, and that helps me.
0: So taking the body as a cue, particularly that sense of tightening <coughs> and hardening the around the heart area, and letting that be a cue, learning to soften, and almost like letting that be a starting place for inquiry, mm-hmm. to see what's there, and it brings out a hearing. <coughs> the reflection, oh, not not to be caught in a tight relationship, but to open, oh, what's happening for this person? Mm-hmm. But to use the body as a cue, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One or two more, maybe, please
1: sometimes with my children and I can just get so <laughs> distressed. Um, I just sort of internally ask for help and I just can pull out of these power struggles and sometimes I just go mm-hmm. I don't have a particular sense of God but sometimes say God please help me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, it just shifts me you know, mm-hmm. out of the kind of tightening to realizing how vulnerable you
0: mm-hmm.
1: feel in those moments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So just really at certain moments knowing that you're a little bit what? Whacked out. Whacked out. <laughs> <laughs> Buddhist technical term. Whacked out. <laughs> um, but you're a little whacked out, and you—it's like the meditative 911. <laughs> so it's—but um, it's really at that moment, just really asking and you know, asking for some wisdom, some shift of perspective. So it's—but it's that asking that's so so crucial. Need one more like <laughs> to
1: um, both going taking the time to go inside and to see what's there also uh, being in nature mm-hmm. as a way of connecting with a larger perspective
0: mm-hmm. yeah so both both really taking continually going inside so it's you kind of have both bases covered. Go inside, go outside. <laughs> 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 uh, keep, balance. keep balance. and yeah. But, but that, that's really the shift of perspective, the going outside, the take letting the, almost like the healing energies, potentially healing energies of the uh, non-human world. Yeah. Yeah. So this, I, I imagine that if we compiled what everyone does here, had it on a list, and then kind of wrote a page or two for each of the ideas, We could publish it, and it would be a best-selling book. Because <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot of collective wisdom. I hope to kind of have a, have a sense of that in, the, in this week and next week, so we really can, can learn from each other. And I thought what I would do this time would be to give three of my own. And it actually relates a lot to what other people have, uh, have said. And then, I think, do three or four next time. And all the while, in our discussion and in our work together, we'll intermix what you found so that we have a sense of how to really um, have a sense of resources for what helps us to do this in a really practical, ordinary way. And I thought, so I'll do my three. And for each of them, I thought I would have both a, like a Dharma teaching that I could read and also a poem. <clears throat> I'm going to have each, I'm going to have these three, and each of them will have a teaching and a poem. Well, I think I'll start with the teaching and end with the poem for each of them. Mm-hmm. And so, the first one, and I'll, I have a kind of a name for each of them. The first one, I call uh, "Know What's Important," and this that sense of um, increasingly living one's life out of what one most deeply values what one most deeply wants and for many of this, this takes time to manifest and it uh, has to do with somehow working through the distractions the busyness all the ways that somehow our lives are not as um, fully manifesting what we deeply believe The teaching that I'll start with is a classical teaching in Tibetan tradition called the Four Mind Turns. Some of you know this teaching, it's a powerful one. It basically says, uh, look at four areas, reflect in four ways, and doing so, in that tradition says, turns one's mind towards the Dharma, towards the focus on what's most true we could say in other language, it, focuses, it turns one towards centering one's life on freedom or love or transformation, whatever language <coughs> one uses. And so in the Tibetan tradition, it's expressed as reflecting on these four areas. The first is the preciousness of the human birth. The second is the truth of impermanence and the reality of death. The third is the reality of suffering, and the fourth is the inescapability of karma. <laughs> so, somewhat, it's a strong teaching, <laughs> you know, and it's uh, it's something that um, is often given to people when they're younger in their practice to really help them. Um, get their priorities straight, because I think for me, and I think for, probably for many of us, it's hard to prioritize. There's so many demands on life, in life. You know, one's work, one's family, this or that, and how do we, how do we have our deeper values really um, at the center? It's not to say that being busy is necessarily a problem. We can be really, really busy and, and have our priorities completely clear. Because sometimes there are periods in which we necessarily have to be busy so this is what this is I'll read a few passages from um, some very traditional ways this gets expressed in Tibetan tradition so first the precious human existence this precious human birth so favorable for the practice of Dharma is hard to gain and easily lost so at this time I must do something meaningful And many of you know that in, particularly in Tibetan tradition, but also in the teachings of the Buddha, there's often this sense that actually to be born is, is not so common. And there are metaphors where it's said that to actually have a human birth is about as rare as the possibility of a turtle swimming somewhere in one of the vast oceans. Coming up and sticking its head under, kind of like a um, what a, yoke. a, a yeah. yoke that's in the water. Thinking kind of like what what are those things we used inner to tube. like an inner tube. Mm-hmm. Kind of like to have to have this inner tube floating somewhere in the vast <coughs> oceans and the turtle by some chance comes and sticks <coughs> its head through the inner tube. That's the chance of having a human birth. Think of again, it's a different kind of cosmology than we have. But you think of all the insects, all the bacteria, you know, in this vast sense of what it means to, to be alive. And that's the Tibetan models. They say we often take this human life for granted. And yet it's very, very precious. And reflecting on that can be very important. We can also reflect on the fact that that there is impermanence. And I'll read the second passage here. The world and all its inhabitants are impermanent. In particular, the life of beings is like a bubble in water. It is uncertain when I will die and become a corpse. Since only the dharma can help me at that time, I must now practice with diligence." There are similar reflections on the reality of suffering, the importance of really transforming the roots of suffering, as in the teaching of the Four truths and what we might call the inescapability of karma. And I, I would want to interpret that here, not so much in some sort of mysterious sense of I do this and my fate five years later is determined or something, but more in the sense that we're continually, in every one of our actions, in a sense we're strengthening certain tendencies and not strengthening others. When I act kindly and strengthening tendencies to kindness, when I act with awareness, and strengthening awareness so that every one of our actions actually matters. Everything that I do has consequences. And so these four mind turnings are ways to remind us to say, what's really important for me? What are my priorities? And I find that this is one of the great uh, benefits for me of doing retreats, that it somehow always brings me back. What's really important for myself? It's so easy who get caught up with with different kinds of um, uh, events, responsibilities, even a lot of them can be, even for me, uh, taking a teaching role, they can often be beneficial and seem to be connected with meditation and awareness. But I can be doing too much. I can get distracted just by trying to do too much. One friend who also teaches here, Gil Fronsdale, said, this is particularly relevant for teachers, but maybe for some of us, he said too much dharma is not dharma. I mean if you get too busy with all this stuff, you can get off-center. And so how do you, how do we prioritize? And I think for some of us, including myself, doing less is really important to prioritize. You know? I often joke that for many of us, completing our to-do list is more important than awakening. <laughs> right. Check out what's true. And, and, and so for some of us, actually doing less can be really crucial. And so this first way to deepen daily life practice, know what's important. And the poem that I'll read is from Mary Oliver, It's the one that actually probably many of you know, When Death Comes, because reflection on death, as in the Tibetan reflections, can really be helpful for asking what, what we want to do. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snap the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades. I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and so singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of arguments. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. second way of deepening practice that's been really, really important for me, I want to um, express through the words of my main uh, teacher and mentor in meditation over the last 10 years or so, who also teaches here, John Travis, and has also been a really important mentor. But John worked with me particularly around um, developing awareness of the body and focusing on the body in daily life practice. And so my phrase is a phrase that he once said to me, which he said, let your body be your monastery. And he said that in the context of a discussion. You were saying, well, you know, it's hard in daily life. And he was saying, yeah, you know, know, he's particularly practiced with a lot of Tibetan teachers, and he was saying, yeah, those Tibetan lamas, they just live in a monastery and they have all the support. And, um, you know, they you know, and that's what their life is about. It's focused in this way. So how do we do it? How do we do it? Um, and he said, let your body be your monastery. Let your body be that which reminds you to be aware. It's very much like your use of the body. remind me you of your name? Sarah. Yeah, Sarah talked about that use of the body and, and awareness of the body in daily life, something we could take a whole a time or two or three on has just been really crucial for me and it's that, that working in various ways to develop awareness of the body it's something that I can, as it gets developed it can be a link with awareness, with wisdom something that I work with in daily life. So here's a, here's the Buddha. In this very one-fathom-long body along with perceptions and thoughts do I proclaim the world the origin of the world, the end of the world, and the path leading to the end of the world. Right there with the body. In this very one-fathom long body, do I proclaim the world, the origin of the world, the end of the world, and the path leading to the end of the world? It's Kind of a version of the Four Truths. You can hear their echo. And it's been really central. It's central in the Buddhist teachings about mindfulness. (laughs) Starts with mindfulness of the body. Even right now, can you be aware of the body? Can you, can you, can you root your awareness there? And it, for me, it's been a practice which has taken time to have more and more body awareness becomes a way to make this real in daily life. We can talk, maybe, I'll talk more next time about, about doing that, but it's to how, to how to bring, how to have the awareness just in daily life be present centered and I find the body particularly important for some of us it might actually be through the heart to say let me bring my heart to each moment and and often that can be felt as Sarah did as something primarily through the body around the heart how can I have my heart in uh, my interactions with others and for me the body is particularly crucial here to have the body awareness that what it does is when I'm aware of my body, it takes me out of the monolithic construct of the mind, of thinking. This kind of virtual reality, which can is like a trance. And so being aware of the body can snap that trance in many ways. And so for many of us, this may be an edge which we develop. I'm going a little quickly through that. I could take like a week or two on the body. But I want to mention this last one and then open things up. The last, oh, the poem. The poem is from the Sufi poet Hafiz, who's I think people are getting to know almost as much as Rumi these days. Mm -hmm. Very, very wonderful. It's from a wonderful book called *The Gift*, poems by Hafiz. He lived, I think, around—I forget the exact years. Twelve hundred, I
1: think.
0: Twelve hundred, so not not, pretty close to the time of Rumi. 13th century this is called the body a tree (coughs) kind of reminds me of the yogic position people like the tree posture in yoga sweet the body a tree the body a tree God a wind when he moves me like this like this angels bump heads with each other gathering beneath my cheeks holding their wine barrels, catching the brilliant tear, pearl, rain. The body a tree, God a wind, when he moves me like this, like this. Angels bump heads with each other, gathering beneath my cheeks, holding their wine barrels, catching the brilliant tear, pearl, rain. Then the last one, uh, I call uh, break the mirror. It has to do with uh, finding ways to cut through our habitual patterns. It's been really, really crucial for me to kind of get stuck. How do I get unstuck? And we heard a lot of different methods: calling, um, calling God on the local emergency line, <laughs> <laughs> checking in with the heart. You know. Um, Going into the woods and so forth. I think all of our methods that we heard this morning from 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 um, from us are ways to break the trance, get out of how do you get unstuck? And so we each need these wonderful tools to get unstuck, and maybe we have a lot of them, but we have to somehow practice them. And so the the Dharma text was that uh, Buddha said it's necessary in practice to go against the stream of conditioning. And this is from his, his talk when he was reporting on his own awakening. This dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But it is hard for this generation to see the truth. And it is hard to see the truth the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of attachments, the destruction of craving, nibbana. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me. And that would be wearying and troublesome for me. <coughs> kind of an interesting comment <laughs> where we get trouble. But but he's basically saying that there's too much stuckness. And he, he actually is talking to himself and saying, I'll just stay with my private awakening. This is right after he was enlightened, he said, I'm not gonna teach he says those died and lost wrapped in darkness will never discern this abstruse Dhamma which goes against the worldly stream subtle, deep and difficult to see and of course many of you know that at that moment the king of the gods Brahma came down and said please teach and gave him a few convincing arguments. And the Buddha said, OK. <laughs> uh, so that's the, that's the classic text. So this idea of how do we work out of our places of stuckness, the kinds of trance that we have. And um, I heard a version of uh, this, this idea from uh, Kafka. Using somewhat violent metaphors, he said, he was, he was referring to reading and reflection. He said a good book is like a pickaxe to break the frozen ice of the mind.
1: <laughs>
0: and so how do we do that? And so we find, I think when we do daily sitting, in a way, we get unstuck to some degree. When we do a retreat, we can do that. When we go out in nature, when we uh, maybe talk to a friend, when we consciously say, I'm stuck, how do I move in this way? Some of us do something like the Sabbath, which helps in many ways. We learn to see things differently. We take, we travel, we take the perspectives of others. All of this is really about how do we, how do we get out of where we're stuck? And so for me, this was something really that I have found really a, a, an important personal emphasis. And I'll read actually the. I'll close with this poem that comes from uh, Nanao Sakaki, who's a Japanese poet, and kind of wandering wandering Buddhist itinerant poet, activist, agitator. (laughs) (laughs) And a friend of Gary Snyder, a poet. And that's how I got to know about him. Some of you may know of him. And he wrote this very short poem about this very last idea. So it's going to come quickly. So listen. (laughs) To stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. To stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. Meaning, the mirror being that sense of stuckness or closeness. And so I'd like to just close by inviting uh, each of us to reflect, if you so choose. Is there one way that you could focus on in the next week that would deepen your practice? might be something I mentioned or someone else mentioned or something that you know yourself. To deepen practice, can I focus on one thing in the next week? And just reflect what that might be if you feel if you feel called to do that. And I'll close and with that and invite any any reflections or comments or questions. Thank you. Please.
1: I have a poster. When Joseph Goldstein was here, he said, we um, were talking about the difficulty in, in getting our undisciplined themselves to sit. And he said, we could all take one minute to sit on the cushion in the morning. Mm-hmm. And you know, as long as you're there, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it really is helpful mm-hmm. it really is, you know I have a moment and then that
0: moment can expand mm-hmm. yeah, and that's have. beautiful and remind of me of your name? Vida, Vida. yeah so um, yeah, so Vita's point really is a way of how do you just break the cycles or break the, kind of almost like break the trance and find a way and we probably could assemble all sorts of methods you know, and maybe we'll do that in the, you know, the next, we just have about five minutes left. Maybe we can do that here, but it's something that we can, I think, do as a community. These small methods can make a huge difference. You know, I do things like as much as I can after uh, uh, lunch, particularly. I just take a walk, and I just try to be mindful. take a five or ten minute walk, and it just it makes a difference. It brings me back. It takes me out of whatever groove I'm in just sit for 1 minute if you have a really busy day sit for 1 minute or 5 minutes thank you thank you Joseph thank you Joseph you know your comment
1: on the uh, the the middle poem yeah okay about the tree uh, brought to mind something I encountered just recently, and it's to um uh, it's to contemplate
0: the connection between mm-hmm. the tree of paradise and human knowledge and the
1: tree of the cross and divine wisdom
0: mm-hmm. yeah um, very powerful symbols, yeah. You know, I know, I've uh, quite a few times had dreams of the tree of life, as many of you. And it, it is this age-old symbol, which is in very strong in Jewish tradition, very strong in shamanic traditions, probably many others. You know, almost like this axis, which holds up the earth, and which is, you yeah. climb the tree, you know, and it takes you to other realms. So, um... And some would see the human body as a metaphor, or as like the tree in certain ways. So, um, Buddhist mindfulness practice is somewhat, um, somewhat focused on not doing a whole lot with metaphors, <laughs> even though there are a lot of metaphors in teaching. You just to stay with your experience, <laughs> stay with your direct experience. But I think there actually there are a lot of metaphors, like the Buddha when I quoted, going against the stream. That's a metaphor to say to remind one. So, so that the beautiful these metaphors of the tree or the cross, uh, very similar, because the cross is also it's like a um, it's like a metaphor for that vertical plane in human existence. Thank you. Maybe one more. I, I talked a little more than I thought I would, but maybe next time I'll just won't. <laughs> thank you yeah um,
1: having been uh, really affected by Sylvia's book yeah I have been practicing and continue to be um, really mindful of the state the quality of my mind yeah um, whether it is benevolent whether there is caring um uh, and it's it's a wonderful way to. For one thing, we, we often um, turn the mind into an enemy, mm-hmm. and this is another way of not doing that, mm-hmm. of using the mind skillfully. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found it uh, it's it's really keeping me on the edge,
0: just really just checking in and saying what's the what's the quality of the the flavor and another another practice I learned from Solia very similar is just to check in periodically and say where's my heart at right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what's the quality of my heart you know we can we can do that or I think of uh, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill you know who sat in that redwood tree who lives in the Bay Area she speaks of asking the question with every action is my action coming out of love so there's these ways that we can actually be pretty radical. Just by asking, it's it's almost like we can be very simple. I think there's some power that comes from the simplicity of just saying, "Where's my mind at right now? Where's my heart at?" You know, or or just asking, "Where's this action coming from?" And just kind of staying with um, just something with this one quality. So it's not complicated. I like, got to do this and that, and this and that, and this and that. But just stay with one thing, because I, I find, for my own practice, if I have to say. A lot of it's been from staying with one thing and doing it for a week, two weeks, a month, two months, and then when I do it for that long, it some somehow gets anchored in my being, and then I might move on to something else. It's like almost like a training, a training cycle. I stay with one instruction for a period of time until it gets kind of ingrained in me, you know. And then I might not do it. I might not even remember it, but it's it's there in a new way. So I would invite. people who want to practice in this way for the next week, to, to really take something, like that you either may be something that you already do or something that was mentioned this morning. How many people are interested in doing something like that for this next week to really just take a focus and, and have the group support you to do that? So we can do that and we can compare notes next time. And. Marty, you were wanting to add one piece I know. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, the thing be is, brief because, we're, because, we're because time of
1: I, I agree yeah. with, but then what happens when you check in with yourself and you say, my mind is not where I want it to be, my heart is not where I want yeah. it to be, and the importance, maybe that's where break the mirror comes in.
0: Well, that that's the first step, really, because knowledge of lack of mindfulness or lack, or being off. It, it actually is part of the healing process, or it's part of the transformative process. And so that's why the checking in process is so key. It doesn't mean that you check in and find things are great necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we know that. <laughs> it's, it's a road
1: right to uh, negative self judgment. If, if it you're can.
0: If not careful. Okay, so then so we have, maybe we'll, we'll bring in yeah. something about negative self judgment, but to notice that things aren't as we wish, then we. It, it's important, and, and what you're saying is that for some of us, knowing that things aren't as we wish uh, is an aspect of mindfulness, but it can trigger other more negative patterns that keep us uh, keep us somewhat stuck. So that's what you're, you're <coughs> saying. Maybe we can actually. That was one of my remaining three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to be continued. Okay. <laughs> so tune in at the same station, same time, and. Uh, but will I'll note that. we will come back to that. But yeah, it's. But the whole, the whole spirit when we do this is somehow to be to work to, to learn increasingly, and it's not easy to be non-judgmental when you know something hard. So let's just sit for a minute to close. reflect on what may have been helpful from the morning and your own intention for continuing forth this one way of practicing, one way of working to deepen daily life awareness and compassion. This one way, what might that be for you? You can set your intention. we reflect as we do typically at the end of a sitting and how we do this practice not just for ourselves but for others and may we offer what's been valuable helpful, fruitful may we offer that outward beyond the boundaries of this building and this land out into the world for the benefit the healing the freedom of all beings Thank you. thank you it was nice to be back and hope to see you next week
1: just a reminder leave the chairs where they are thank you <laughs>
0: for a Thank you for listening.